Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, we awoke to news this morning of greater geopolitical risk coming out of the Mideast, uh, the Mideast U.S. airstrike on Iran that killed Qasem Soleimani, one of Iran's most powerful generals. Uh, to get a sense of what that means for geopolitics in general and the markets in particular, we welcome our guest, Peter Chur, head of macro strategy at Academy Securities, joining us on the phone from New Canaan, Connecticut. And Robert Walsh, retired Marine Lieutenant General, uh, Academy Securities Advisory Board member as well. He's on the phone from Washington, D.C. I want to start with you, General Walsh, just give us a sense of who this character Qasem Soleimani is and what it means for the U.S. to take him out. Uh, Soleimani was probably the key player in the region when you look at the uh, the Middle East is what our strategic objectives really are there, I think, is really to protect U.S. interests and uh, probably avoid any type of war over there. He's one that's been spreading influence since uh, the U.S. was involved in Iraq. If you go back to the Iraq War, uh, most of the m- many powerful IEDs that uh, were attributed uh, over there that killed over 600 U.S. personnel were attributed to um, Soleimani and his uh, IGRC or Quds Force uh, was over there. And uh, he has been really behind all the strategy of Iran developing what we call a bridge from all the way from Iran, you know, through Iraq, into Syria, and then over into um, uh, Lebanon, Hezbollah, and those areas there. Also, you've seen him behind the uh, what uh, Iran has been doing in Yemen and uh, in trying to destabilize that area. So I think the key part for us to, of taking him out was everything we were trying to do, he was countering, and he was designated as a uh, – organization was designated as a terrorist organization, and he was designated as a terrorist leader. Um, And I think the Trump administration had been very uh, trying to hold this to economic um, leverage, trying to hold them down economically. And I think of recent, we've seen what Soleimani has done behind Iran is really start to build this into attacking uh, Americans. And that latest attack on the American base that killed the Iraqi contractor, wounding several uh, troops, I think was probably the last straw in there to say now that that had crossed the red line. The key thing here now, I think, with uh, with him out of the way is what will Iran's actions be now? Uh, they're fairly limited on what they can do in relation to what the U.S. power has. And I think another key part of all this is how will this play out in Iraq? Well, and I want to pick up exactly on that point, uh, General Walsh, which is that what can Iran possibly do? It seems like markets are suggesting not all that much, even though they have promised serious retaliation. Peter, is your sense uh, that basically markets are saying this is not going to be a big deal long term and isn't going to be more than a blip? 
Yeah, I think markets are really saying this is going to remain regional for now. Um, you know, when we've talked to the generals, General Walsh included, you know, the view is that um, Iran really doesn't have the ability to project power very far outside of the region. They're also not going to want to really coalesce ourselves, the Saudis and Israel, into a cohesive force against them. So we think it remains a little bit regional. And I think the big important thing for people here to remember is we have a strong view, or at least I have a strong view, that higher oil prices are not bad for the U.S. now that we've become energy independent. So I think from an economic standpoint, we really haven't been involved in the Mideast in terms of selling goods and so we're not going to lose much on the consumption side. I think energy is kind of a wash for us. I think this one thing that it does is it changes the narrative that I've been a part of as well, where you think that Europe and Asia might outperform the U.S. this year. They're going to get hit much ha- harder by higher oil prices. So that could be a risk, especially if we see Brent versus WTI spread increase. So, General, just uh, quickly, what kind of retaliation do you think uh, Iran could mount here, given that maybe some limitations in their ability to project much out of the region? Like I said, we stepped things up quite a bit by now doing this uh, this uh, a tactical attack, but it, it was had strategic implications. But this did cross the red line with President Trump by by taking this to away from ec- economic sanctions to now bring it to a military strike or actions. This kind of raised the game, and it put us into a new area in our um, competition there with Iran in the Middle East for influence. I think what you'll see out of Iran is there's going to be a pause. They're going to have to reassess because this did cross the red line for uh, the administration. When we took this, I think this is probably going to be very surprising to Iran that we went to this next level because as you see what they've been trying to do is to break down those economic sanctions that have been going on to try to try to drive a wedge between us, uh, the Europeans, between us and China. And, and you saw their attacks on the oil tankers, the Saudi oil fields. They took down one of our drones uh, and then finally attacked the U.S. bases. So what I would expect is a continuation of what they have been doing is reaching out across the area and trying to take uh, attacks on American influ- in- interest, but keeping it down below the level of uh, conventional conflict because they really don't want to go there. They want to try to drive a wedge between us and the rest of the, the uh countries in the Middle East and also across the globe. So I think this is going to be an awakening to them that we've taken this next step and their plan of how they've been doing these small strategic attacks or small tactical attacks is really not working uh, in the uh, in the intent that they wanted. Thank you to both of you, uh, General Walsh, Robert Walsh, uh, retired Marine Lieutenant General for Academy Securities, uh, an advisory board member there on the phone from Washington, D.C. Peter Shear, thank you so much, as always, for your perspective, uh, head of macro strategy at Academy Securities. Well, we started trading today with a lot of news impacting the market, geopolitical news out of Iraq. Then we had the ISM number come out with the factory gauge uh, coming in the weakest it's been since 2009. Is this causing investors to kind of reassess some of the trades coming into 2020? We welcome Danielle DiMartino Booth, good friend of the show. She's the CEO and director of intelligence at Quill Intelligence. And she's also a former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Uh, she joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Danielle, it's perfect timing to have you here. A lot has arguably changed mm-hmm. just in the last hours. How are you kind of thinking about the geopolitical news we had overnight, plus some of the manufacturing data we got out of the ISM this morning? 
So um, I'm, I'm going to be contrarian to my normal bear self and say okay. that we've had a lot of net positive news come out today. Um, we saw customer inventories uh, come down significantly. That portends very well for the future of new orders, and that's really what markets have their eye on the most closely. We've seen new orders um, sink for five months in a row, and they're at the lowest level since April of 2009. So that, on the surface, looks very bad, but you saw backlogs tick up. And backlogs is another representation of future demand. And uh, you know, as, as far as the, the oil price situation goes, we uh, at Quill Intelligence, we follow every single state's continuing claims, initial jobless claims and claims in Texas have become very problematic. They're up 13% year over year. You know, I think with WTI north of $60, this is going to cause a lot of energy patch uh, layoff potential to come down. So we could actually start to see a beneficial effect in the 10th largest economy in the world, Texas, that's been really under quite a bit of stress as well as the country of Mexico. All right. If this trading environment persists for longer than just today, mm -hmm. let's say this isn't just a blip. Can you walk us through uh, how much some of the consensus trades will be upend? And I say that as I look at, for example, the MSCI Emerging Markets Currency Index, and it's having its worst day, uh, biggest decline at one point since August, uh, now at November. Uh, you're seeing the potential for yields to increase longer term if oil prices really shoot up, right? Because it increases sort of uh, the, the prospect of that type of inflation. It pushes down the prospects for Europe, which has been also a trade. I right. mean, can you sort of walk us through this? So there are there are trades that are at risk in in two w big ways in my mind. I mean, markets came into this year saying this is going to be a global reflationary year. This is going to be when 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 global economic growth comes together in a good way. And actually, if you look at the at the breadth of the global ISMs that came out yesterday, forty nine percent were in contraction. We haven't seen south of 50% since May. So we really are seeing um, less bad inf information come out. So uh, until today, again, it was very supportive of this idea of global reflation. Um, and we've seen backlogs also be less bad, which is, which is future demand globally. But the implications of higher Brent oil prices for China and for Europe, which rely much more on some of the uh, Iraqi and Iranian oil supplies. That is not a positive. So I think, again, you're starting to put this global reflation trade at risk. At the same time, we're seeing wage inflation tick up, especially among small businesses. And if we see a persistent increase in energy prices, as well as wage inflation going into 2020, and it doesn't dissipate, then all of a sudden you've got the Fed is on hold idea for the entire year come at risk. All of a sudden you've got a two-way trade here with trade uh, with, with the Fed, and investors beginning to ask the question, will Jay Powell be forced to raise interest rates in 2020? The markets are not banking on that at all. Yeah, I rejected that. So Paul is <laughs> uh, looking, looking, <laughs> looking sort of self-righteous at me. So is there, again, we think about the consumer, we think about 2020, I think the consensus calls for 2% kind of GDP growth, maybe a smidge higher than that. Anything that you've seen in the last 24 hours that make you maybe step back from that a little bit of, from that consensus call? Well, I, I tell you what, we uh, we studied the difference between the methodologies used between IHS IHS market, which is getting a lot more, I think, investor interest of late because it comes out before ISM and especially yesterday's report. What I didn't like in the report was that the employment index ticked down and the correlation, the co-movement between manufacturing payrolls and that of IHS market is 091 
that compares to 0.76 for the ISM. In other words, if you want to get a read on factory payrolls, and that's been a swing factor every, you know, every non-farm payroll Friday, it looks like we're going to see continued decreases in factory payrolls. We're also seeing that play out in some of the rail data um, because we're seeing declines in, in auto and auto production. Uh, rail loadings, we're seeing all kinds of ugliness at the ports as well as in freight. This calls that idea of a manufacturing renaissance into question. Um, so I've, I've effectively spoken out of both sides of my mouth. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well I mean, honestly, uh, we're getting conflicting data, and that's yes. one of the issues is creating so much uncertainty. And when you talk about the auto sector, we've been getting auto uh, sales numbers out mm-hmm. of the big auto manufacturers today. They're not good for the most no. part. For and example, it, right. Honda's December U.S. auto sales were down 12% versus an estimated gain. Uh, the GM's uh, fourth quarter total deliveries were down 6.3%. The estimate was supposed to be down 6%. Uh, we're seeing a, a big decline, an unexpectedly big decline in Toyota. I mean, it's pretty much across the board, right. despite the fact uh, that we saw that trucks are gaining steam and that the prices are going up and mm-hmm. their profits are going up. I mean, this is concerning, no? Or is this all it, priced it, in? It absolutely is concerning because I think that the GM strike, that the silver lining of the GM strike was that it took down some of the anxieties about all of these inventories that had built up because you took these production lines down. And so the idea was after the strike that they would be able to fire everything back up and you know keep moving forward and not the risk of production cuts, further production cuts really came down after the GM strike with these data that we're seeing come out today, I question that and whether or not GM and the the big three are going to have to look at, despite some calming in Detroit, are going to have to look at continued production cuts. That is not a positive for the U.S. economy. How about for the consumer? What's your view on the consumer right now? Well, I think, you know, if you looked at credit card borrowing over the holidays, I mean, 2019 was a bang up year. And unfortunately, we we get consumer credit data out with such a lag that every time we get a retail sales report that beats, you know, a a few weeks later, we get the consumer credit report out, which is usually on non-farm payroll Friday, nobody pays attention to it. (laughs) But we've been getting these blockbuster figures on revolving credit. That means that the consumer is relying increasingly, even as even as credit card delinquencies increase, that the consumer is relying increasingly on credit cards to support their consumption. And if you're seeing weakness out of Honda, if you're seeing weakness out of Toyota, those are some of the lowest priced vehicles out there. That is also a sign that consumers are struggling. Danielle DiMartino Booth, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Danielle DiMartino Booth is Chief Executive Officer and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence. She's also a former advisor to the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Well, by all accounts, holiday retail sales were quite strong in U.S., kind of reflecting what we think is the, the strength that we hear about so consistently of the U.S. consumer. To get the latest, we welcome Craig Johnson. He's president of Customer Growth Partners. So, uh, Craig, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, give us your sense of how the holiday retail sales ended up in the U.S. Uh, well, it was really a, quite a good season. It, it may not have started out that way. Um, uh, we had a long, warm fall, and even now, in, in, we're a week or two into winter, and it's been relatively warm. So that depressed a lot of outerwear and sweater sales. But after a slow start, and once we got near Black Friday, things uh, really started picking up. And then De- December was just a breakout month. It was just uh, uh, exceptionally strong growth. We think December month alone was in, up uh, in excess of 6%. Super Saturday, uh, uh, last Saturday before Christmas, was up 8% year over year. So uh, really ended up on a high note. So who benefited and who uh, wasn't as big of a beneficiary? Well, there were, uh, as, as often happens, some win- winners and winners and losers in the uh, uh, in the sector, and um, uh, some of the strongest ones were first of all, online sales were just in, in exceptionally strong. That's cr- across merchandise categories. But online sales uh, were up about 19 percent year over year, and of the uh, the growth that we saw total. Uh, up 5.1 percent for the uh, uh, for the entire season. Uh, online sales accounted for almost 60 percent of that 5.1 percent growth. And then when you get into merchandise sectors, some of the strong sectors were food and beverage, which is part of of, of the mix. That's you know at grocery stores and so forth, uh, liquor stores. So all that was very very strong. And then the uh, the other sector that was strong was sporting goods and toys. Sporting goods uh, uh, reflecting the comeback we've seen at, at places like uh, Dick Sporting Goods, uh, but also it was very strong se- season for uh, for toys. The all the licensed products were, were Frozen Two the new Star Wars, uh, et cetera. And, and so that was all uh, quite a strong category as well. Weaker sectors, however, were department stores. You know, they're down uh, mid to high uh, single digits. And then apparel stores, which were down maybe a point or two year over year. So, Craig, coming into the holiday season, we heard a lot about, oh, gee, there's one, it's a one-week shorter season compared to last year. That didn't seem to be a problem, did it? No, not at all. Statistically, uh, the industry, uh, and you know, led by the NRF National Retail Federation and ourselves, we, you know, we, we've been doing this for 20 years. Christmas season consists of November and December. Last time I checked, they each had 20, 61 days. Uh, it doesn't change year over year. Now that there may be internal changes in which we saw, as I, as I alluded to, you know, with uh, you know, with with the with a warm uh, and, and extended fall. Um, but people are spinning a little bit closer to need, um, and we just saw just once we got into December, things uh, week by week, uh, things accelerated. And even the what retail second season, which is the week between Christmas and New Year's, that was the best ever. That was $130 billion. It was just exceptionally strong. You know, both um, uh, the day after Christmas, in England they call it Boxing Day, that was great. And then the weekend of the uh, 28th and 29th of December, uh, very, very strong traffic, very strong. Hey, Craig, are we going to – well, let me put it to you this way. How promotional do you think retailers were during this period? Are we going to listen to the next quarterly conference calls from these companies and say, yeah, we drove top-line sales, but it was at the expense of margin? Um, on, regretfully, we think that's going to be the case – 
and again, not across the board, but particularly for apparel stores and then uh, many of the department stores. Uh, many apparel stores were routinely, not just on Black Friday, but since then, have been at 50% off everything. And that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's fine for Black Friday. You keep it, you know, for just, you know, the, the, the few days of, of that long weekend. But if you keep that up all the way through December, that's, that is not a recipe for healthy margins. So uh, much of the apparel sector was at 30 40 50% off. Um, and department stores often got up that high, but it, it was it was it was a tough season for apparel, and we are going to see clearly see. You know, I'm not talking about Lululemon, you know, that rarely goes on discount. They had a terrific season, but for your regular lineup, the usual suspects, um, uh, um, uh, apparel stores, uh, there's going to be some margin pressure. Craig, just real quick here, 30 seconds. How much do you expect spending by retailers on their online presences uh, in the year ahead? Um, we're looking to mid-teens, possibly mid to high teens. So it was 15, 16, maybe 17% year-over-year growth online. It's It continues to burgeon. It really hasn't fallen off barely at all. Craig Johnson, thank you so much for being with us. Craig Johnson is president of Customer Growth Partners, talking about how good retail sales were. On the first trading day of 2020, it was more of the same optimism, everything rally. The second day of trading in 2020, things changed a bit. Joining us now, Jim Paulson, Chief Investment Strategist at the Luthold Group, uh, joining us by phone from Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. I'm wondering, Jim, do you think if uh, this sort of environment that we're in right now, first of all, do you think it could persist? But second of all, uh, would it change your outlook? I, you know, this is always, you know, it's an uncertain uh, event, and so you never know how that might go. But I think events like this, to me, is is why you're diversified in the first place, and probably shouldn't do much more than that with with this type of thing. Um, if if uh, if it gets a lot worse, it could be a buying opportunity. In in my view, I think that. Um, the odds are that this is going to blow over as far as a big market event. Um, but, you know, there's certainly scenarios where it could become more intense. I, I just think the risk of uh, too high for Iran to, you know, engage in a full-on military uh, reply, they'll probably uh, get back at us in, in more subtle ways, I think, would be my would be my guess. So um, I think the volatility, though, Lisa, is what's interesting. And um, I think we've had such stable markets for so long. We, we, we had such a, a tremendous upside run, not only yesterday, but the, in the last, in the fourth quarter last year. And it's been a while since we've had a VIX event, if you will, and certainly a geopolitical event that was not at all talked about or discussed coming out of the out of left field. And and so I, I can understand why the reaction was pretty strong this morning, but I think if we uh, settle down over the weekend, um, I think traders coming back in on Monday are going to be looking a lot more at uh, fundamental data, I think, than they will be at this. So, Jim, give us your thoughts. Let's put the, the geopolitical issue aside to the extent that we can. Coming into 2020, how are, you ex- how are you expecting markets to perform equity markets, given the performance we had in 2019? Yeah. 
Well, you know, a little bit. You know, we we had we didn't have a bear market in 2018, but we got very close. The S and P 500 fell almost 20 percent. The definition of a bear, just shy of that. And I, what I've reflected on is that it sure has felt last year, 2019, felt a lot like the first year of a new bull, in the sense that when you have a bear market, what what follows after that is pessimism spikes, recession fears spike, um, uh, and then yields come down and you you get full-on policy support as the policy officials get equally panicked that the economy's headed down. And we got all that last year. And the market went up uh, despite earnings estimates coming down, despite fundamentals weakening all year long. Uh, it, it climbed a perpetual wall of worry, which is typically what happens in the first year of a new bull. The market recovers, but no one really believes it. And that's kind of what happened last year. As, as you go into the second year of a bull, the drivers change. People start to accept the fact that the recession has ended. And they, they start to get more optimistic about earnings improving and fundamentals getting better. Um, and I think that's kind of what we're seeing as the drivers now uh, as we enter 2020. One of the things I looked at recently is I went back to 1950 and I looked at every first year and second year bull market since 1950. And last year, the market uh, uh, was a huge increase, of course, but it was right on par, just slightly above what you'd had done on average in all first years of post-war bull markets. If we were to continue this pattern for the next year, it would suggest the average move in the second year of a bull run would be that the stock market, the S&P 500, does about rises as high as 35 to 3600 and I'm kind of in that camp I think uh, rates are going to go up economy is going to improve here and globally but also earnings are going to rise and we're going to see more optimism among investors that are under allocated to risk assets in general so uh, rates are going to go up caught my attention because arguably uh, last year was unique from the other first years of a bull market according to your historical calculations in that they were completely driven, some might argue, by a new wave of rate cuts and stimulus by central banks around the world. Does that change the scenario at all? Or is that just a kind of a backdrop for what is otherwise a, a new bull market? Well, typically in the first year of a bull, Lisa, you, you do get substantial rate cuts. Um, you, know, you, you have the collapse in the stock market. Uh, people get fearful about economy slowing and recession coming, and so bond yields uh, fall, and eventually the Fed comes in to cut rates, and that's kind of what we got last year. So, um, you know, that's what you got at the first year of most bull markets is sort of an all-out panic about the economy resulting in full-on policy support. I One of the things that does keep me bullish is just the the degree and magnitude of of policy support coming uh, you know, not only in lower bond yields, but Federal Reserve cuts, uh, uh, the restart of quantitative easing, chronic and constant uh, deficit, federal deficit spending as a percent of GDP growing, more fiscal stimulus, and having that happen not only here, but everywhere around the globe. Two things I'd point out. Um, we, we, uh, we have seldom had something I call the three-gun gooser, where you have falling bond yields, rising money supply, and rising fiscal stimulus at the same time. 
We've had that about 15% of the time in post-war history. We've got that right now. And typically, in the next year, when you're in that situation, it's very good for stocks. The other thing that is pretty unique is we have a yield environment on the 10-year yield, which is below 3%. And back, going all the way back to the 1920s, when we've, been, when we've had a below 3% 10-year yield, that also has, been, has led to very good results in the stock market over the next year. Something like 18% per annum average turns uh, and only having declines uh, about 16% of the time. So I, I, I do agree there's, the risks are up. We're late in the cycle, the longest calendar recovery ever, the longest bull market ever. Um, there's fundamental weakness going on. But boy, there's some pretty good things happening too that I don't think you can just summarily dismiss. I think you continue to lean bullishly this year. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for catching up with us. We appreciate getting your thoughts here as we start 2020. Jim, uh, Jim Paulson is Chief Investment Strategist at the Luthold Group, joining us on the phone from Minneapolis. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.